Hey guys, how are you doing? Another month, another episode. I am like six days out from my due date, so I'm feeling very pregnant and I hope by the time that you guys are listening to this that I have had my baby, Uh, but I may not have. So I will make sure to update the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group with the first pictures of baby Hendrix. Uh, My due date is May 25th, and this is meant to drop one day after my due date, so we'll just see how how close Hendrix is coming. All right, I'm really excited about today's guest. Tiff Sudella Junker is based out of Washington, and she is a mother by adoption to two children with vastly different trauma-based special needs. She mentors and advocates for uh, empathy plus connection before correction approach to parenting. Uh, She stresses extra empathy, mindfulness, humor, attunement, self-passion, and reciprocal atonement as key ingredients to helping tough kids achieve higher function in healthy relationships. So it's through her own stories of struggle and lessons learned with her brilliant, challenging, and hilarious children that she raises awareness and an authentic understanding for the extreme neurology and behavior, circumstances, and the emotional strength found in families struggling to overcome the aftermath of childhood trauma. She has served on the board of the Attachment and Trauma Network, and that is actually where I found her, and she is developing this model for community mentors, believe it or not. So this interview should be very, very relevant to people that listen to this podcast. All right, I'm going to roll that intro, and then you get to meet Tiff. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Tiff, for joining us on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Um, I know that I saw your presentation at the Attachment Trauma Network uh, conference and I was just like, oh my gosh, she's speaking my language because you have a heart for mentorship and building the community, which I know is near and dear to your heart. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And I was so thrilled to connect with you too. And everything that you're doing is so near and dear to my heart too. So I'm so grateful to be a part of this community and to be able to be here and talk with you today. So thank you so much for having me. So if you could just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about where you 
come from and um, how you came to the world of adoption? Yeah. Um, so my, my husband and I, you know, went through infertility and following that journey, um, I had always had an interest in adopting. Um, I actually am a birth parent too. I placed for adoption as a teen. Um, and so, um, had that experience. And so was always very close to the idea of adopting even, even before going through infertility. So I've kind of been on all sides of this, um, both as a birth parent and then experiencing infertility and then deciding that we wanted to adopt. Um, we ended up, you know, we were kind of exploring what our options were and we ended up in a, um, in a class for, um, you know, one of the classes that you take, um, in getting prepared and just decided that we really wanted to keep siblings together. That just kind of really spoke to us. So we decided to go through the foster adopt program in our area. We were in Texas at the time. Um, so that's what we decided was right for us. And, uh, that's how I kind of got my start. I, you know, adopted my two kids through the foster care system in Texas and started out thinking, um, we're really prepared for this. I had been a nanny my, uh, you know, my past life at the time we worked in media, both my husband and I, but I had been a nanny. My husband had been a big brother through big brothers and big sisters. And, uh, we thought if anybody's prepared to handle, you know, kids who have been through some stuff, we are, you know, uh, and we, our kids came to us and we felt immediately overwhelmed and mm -hmm. not prepared and really struggled, became extremely isolated. And what happened was we ended up in a workshop with Bruce Perry a, a while into our struggle. And that sort of kicked off this this, um, what I usually say is this like complete immersion and obsession in neuroscience and how trauma impacts the developing brain. And that's how things sort of started. It changed our lives, changed our parenting. And then we, um, now what we do now, what I do now is I'm a regulation and resilience coach working with families and children, uh, to understand how how early trauma impacts the brain and how to kind of build hope and resilience with children who've experienced early trauma. Okay, that was a long introduction. <laughs> no, that was awesome. Um, and, and there's a lot in there. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I feel like you're one of the lucky ones. I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones too that have had, been able to work directly with Bruce Perry. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that he, does he still do like the smaller workshops where people can just <laughs> I know I know I don't know either but I always like I I didn't realize how big of a deal it was when I was consulting with him on cases as a social worker um but I'm glad that you had that resource so you talked about first of all when you go back and you think of your your decision to choose to adopt through foster care um, we've heard on this podcast before that a lot of times, you know, if you want an infant right, you know, right out the gate, then usually it's private adoption. Did you have any criteria around these are the kids we think we want or these are the age ranges? 
We really didn't. Um, we were, we went in um, really open um, and our idea at the time is not what ended up happening. We, we thought that we, you know, we'll adopt children of any age and then we'll, I knew that I wanted to have the infant experience. So mm -hmm. I thought, you know, whether we, whether we adopt at first infants or not, eventually we'll adopt an infant. That was kind of our plan. But then our children's needs were so complex. We never got to that. Mm. <laughs> um, and my kids were 15 months old. My son was 15 months old and my daughter was six years old when they came to us at the same time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was our. I love that. I love that you um, went into it thinking we're going to keep siblings together. So you said you were pretty much immediately overwhelmed with the with yes. and and had the realization of like well maybe we were not completely equipped so could you just tell me just give us a picture or a snapshot of what did <laughs> yeah this isn't exactly what we thought looked like yeah so when my daughter when well we first of all we were very conscious of the idea that um our daughter was six and our son was you know a baby and we were very very conscious and concerned about her feeling like the baby was taking center stage you know mm. so we really made an effort to build relationship with her first so you know usually when you're getting a baby you like do a nursery and all the things well we did the opposite of that we like did her room like made this big fancy princess room and all of that and um i remember we had my sister-in-law came and painted and all of the things and so she came over and um she walked into our house and we were like here's your room you know like we showed her her room and she passed right by it and went to our room and like jumped on our bed and was like this will do this is the room i want <laughs> it was like it was like immediately from the moment from that moment we were like that is a peculiar reaction <laughs> like we have like done this whole room for you and you that's not you know that is an interesting reaction so it was that <laughs> it was like that kind of thing along with just this constant this this feeling that they never stop moving ever like mm. <laughs> like and now i look back and realize they were both in a mobilized state you know mm. and so yeah they really didn't stop moving you know and it was different than other kids and at the time we thought well they're just really active kids yeah. and we're just not used to this and weren't prepared for it but actually they were in a mobilized state and i remember we have pictures of ourselves at their we had of course a big party welcoming them because mm. we didn't know that that was going to be you know overwhelming for them and everyone and I have pictures and I look back and I'm like deer in headlights in those pictures. <laughs> it's like so overwhelmed. Um, so just things that now I know, I look back and I, I would have done it so differently, you know? Yeah, did you have a toolbox of like therapeutic parenting or were you like, was there a, a, a period of time where you put real traditional parenting like okay we need rules and limits and there needs to be structure and punishment and 
I, I totally did. I started out as the parent that was, I was the fun nanny, you know, mm. when I was a nanny. Um, so I was all about let them, you know, express themselves in every way. And we're going to wear a tutu to the mall and, you know, no shoes to the wedding and say, yes. yeah, yeah, I was very <laughs> nurture, 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 nurture. And um, that was my approach in the beginning. And then I, we were told by experts early on, you know, at that time, that was a long time ago. So um, we were told structure, 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 structure. You have mm. to have structure. You have to have a lot of structure, you know, and limits, boundaries, limits, boundaries. And so we then swung the other way, you know, mm. and started putting in very, very strict structure and um, followed the advice of experts. And, um, and we actually put in so much structure that it didn't even, it didn't feel good. It, it was... Mm. It was not fun. It didn't, our household wasn't fun. It was, we were doing what I call now compliance chasing. We were just constantly, our entire relationship consisted of trying to get them to comply. And mm. it, that we didn't have a relationship. So it didn't work either way, you know? And, um, and even trying to find a middle ground in between those two didn't work. Nothing we were doing was working because we were focused on their behavior mm -hmm. and we were focused on their behavior because their behavior was extreme. Yeah. So we kind of didn't have a choice, right. but at the time we didn't feel like we had a choice, but then getting to a place of understanding their behavior helped us shift out of that. And once we were able to focus on their relationship and having a relationship with them and understanding and teaching them that their behavior was brain-based, that's when things started to shift for all of us. So you were able to go to a workshop with uh, Dr. Bruce Perry and, and you said it kind of catapulted you into this world of immersion in all of uh, these modalities and just the science kind of behind the developing brain. So how did all of those resources, one, how did you access them? If there's a parent sitting at home right now going like, yes, I'm the one that like has done the pendulum swing and I can't find the happy middle. And like, tell me about these resources. Like, how did you find? Yeah. Find that? Well, first of all, it's really interesting because at that workshop with Dr. Bruce Perry, that first one, I stood in like the long, long line waiting. Cause I was so, I was like, I'm in, I get it now. Now I understand that all of this behavior is brain-based. I'm going to like wait in line and I'm going to just, he's going to tell me, cause I was in Houston at the time and he, his child trauma Academy is in Houston. And I was like, finally, I've arrived at the place with the answers. And so I stood in this big long line and got up there and I asked him point blank, this is all awesome. Now, where do I find all of these resources that you're talking about? And he said, they don't exist. Oh. Parents like you are going to have to create them. Wow. <laughs> That's what he said. And it's so true. Um, we started looking and looking and looking and trying to uncover like places that ha took this approach and nobody did at the time. And thankfully we've come a long way from there. You know, that was 15 years ago. Um, 
So we've come a long way from there. Um, schools are a little bit more informed, but what I can say is that, you know, books like The Connected Child and, you know, um, uh, Karen Buckwalter's book, Raising the Challenging Child and um, Dan Hughes's work and Dan Siegel's work, those are all the go-tos for us. Really, we found um, in our early, early years, the book that was like I carried around with me everywhere was No Drama Discipline um, mm -hmm. from Dan Siegel. It really is what helped us take all of the science that we learned and put it into an actionable plan at home. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what really helped us with the first step of taking that science and putting it into play at home. I love it. So through all of this work and through being a parent at the same time, so learning a lot of learning all of this, plus actually trying to integrate it, plus a call from uh, Bruce Perry to uh, be a trailblazer and create resources. You did come up with three guiding truths, right? Yes, we did. Awesome. Well, so walk us through these guiding truths that you have. So really simply, they are uh, early trauma changes the developing brain. Kindness and compassionate responses soothe the sensitized nervous system. And the third truth is we need to redefine communities because now we know what kind of relationships heal trauma. Mm. And I think that really sums up everything, the transformation that our family has been through. Um, and really what we've learned through Dr. Perry has helped not only change the way that we parent, it's the way that we look at everyone and the way that we interact with everyone. Um, I now look at the people in line with me at the grocery store when I'm having a bad day and somebody's irritated or somebody else is irritated in line with me differently because of what we've learned in parenting our kids. Mm. You know, it's been a huge, huge shift for us. And just that understanding, that knowledge that early trauma impacted the way our children's brains developed the way their nervous system operates and what that means for them is that they have now big feeling floods big reactions um, that looks very different for both of our kids and I've had I feel like I have had the advantage of having kids with vastly different trauma related needs so what that looks like in each of them is very, very different, mm. but they both have significant trauma-related needs. Mm. Um, so big feeling floods, big reactions, and what my kids taught me through their behavior is that the, the way for them to change their behavior and get to a place where they could access the clear thinking they needed to be able to do what I was ask, asking to work with me was for me to first soothe their nervous system, help them get to a place where they could access that kind of thinking. It was never that they didn't want to comply. It was that they couldn't. Mm, I love that. So um, a lot of times if you are an onlooker or you're a an onlooker, cause we have those, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah. part of the community or whatever, 
a, a trauma response or a behavior that is coming from um, these big floods of emotion can often just look like that kid's a brat or that kid, those parents are too lax or I wouldn't let my child do that. Right. So like we, we, sure. t- we, it's easy for us to judge. So can you give any examples of like, okay, a neurotypical kid or a kid that hasn't had early developmental trauma um, may react this way or how a child that has experienced early developmental trauma may react in a certain way and why one is, um, okay, yeah, that might be a parenting issue and one might be a brain issue. Yeah. I mean, I, um, one of the things that I've, uh, learned, um, through Ross Green's work too, is that all behavior is communication, right? All behavior is communication. And what I love now that I understand, um, polyvagal theory and all of that is that it's not always conscious communication, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that all behavior with all kids is communicating something, right? So I try really hard not to judge anybody um, and, and all. And I think that one of the biggest things that um, people with kids with trauma related needs, I I think that, that we understand at this like extra high level is how much judgment there is in parenting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so much judgment in parenting in general. And those of us who have kids that struggle with behavior challenges, we just, we feel that we're extra aware of that because there's so much extra of that for us. But what I would say is for a child with, um, with trauma related needs, you can say something to them, like, for example, just to give a, a, a small example, I could say to a child, a neurotypical child, you hit your sister and that's not going to trigger a threat response Mm -hmm. from them. That's not going to necessarily cause a nervous system response Mm -hmm. from that child, but a child with trauma related needs that, that kind of blame language can very easily trigger a physiological response. So what we mean when we say compassionate responses to the nervous system is we wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I would say something that, that is a neutral response, like, oh, we had an unfortunate event, you know, or something like that that's neutral because I know my child with trauma-related needs cannot hear me, cannot receive the message once I put blame language in there. Mm. Does that does that answer your question? Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I talked to, uh, Robin Gobble, who was, yeah, she was on the podcast and I know, and I like questioned her a lot about this. And I know that she, uh, speaks from a, um, perspective of, you know, it's really just human informed rather than trauma informed. This is how we (laughs) should just be with humans. Um, but you know, I raise a, a neurotypical toddler And I've noticed in my parenting approach versus my husband's parenting approach where I, because I only have known and talked about trauma-informed parenting, am much more, well, maybe he needs this to feel safe and maybe that, you know, all of this. Whereas my husband's like, you're not fostering independence. 
and we'll say we need to walk away right now. And when we walk away, like my kid is like in five minutes, fine, redirected. Like he needed me to foster that independence. So I, I thought that I would be like a very structured parent, but I'm actually more nurture, 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 because I, and, and my husband tells me like, well, he does feel safe. Like he's had a safe foundation. He's had these core attachments made. And I'm like, okay, right. So I'm like, there, I feel like there can be, there can be differences, obviously per kid. Yeah. Know. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think you're exactly right. I think it depends on the child and what their secure base looks like and what their response looks like. And I, I think definitely, and I think that's true with kids with trauma related needs Mm -hmm. too. I mean, like I was saying, my kids have vastly different needs. My son is a child that you have to be really, really careful with confrontation with like any kind of confrontation has to be handled very, very delicately and in a very soothing way. And you have to really have that, that neuroception of safety in that moment before you try to address anything with him. My daughter actually, um, if a safe person, if somebody she has a very safe connection with, safe and healthy connection with, if she is extremely dysregulated, sometimes it takes confrontation from that safe person Mm. to help her be, get back, get back to a regulated state. So So I think, it really depends on the person, you know, what is going to help them achieve a neuroception of safety. And, and, um, I think that's where the biggest piece of all of this comes. It's attunement, right? Just being able to attune to states. And that's the core of what Bruce Perry teaches is being able to attune to states. And for me, it was the big aha moment for me was the idea that I'm not going to be able to prevent my children from having these big state changes. It's really about being able to support them in managing those state changes. Yeah. And it, it reminds me too of um, how important outside resources and even like um, allowing other people to try other things. So like I, wouldn't have believed my husband if he just told me things. I would say, no, that won't work, or we really need to do it this way. But I've seen him in action, and I'm like, oh my God, how did you get him to do that? I would never have pushed him that far, and it all worked. So, and I'm thinking of like my time as a social worker when I would go into homes, and as an early social worker, I would come home or I would come back to the office and complain that like parents didn't do anything I didn't tell them to do. And they would say, Rebecca, if you just go in for, for one hour and you're an example of what could be an outcome or could be an intervention or could be, then you're doing your job. And now, you know, all these years later, I feel like I'm seeing how just showing someone, because there's a lot of fear behind making the wrong decision, right? We put all this Absolutely. on ourselves. We're like, no, this isn't going to work. And then it's going to lead to, you know, a nightmare for him or me or a trauma for him or whatever. So it is nice to be able to see your kids in different environments or see other people, even whether it's a family member or, you know, a practitioner or a daycare or a school, try interventions where you go, hmm, 
you know what? I wouldn't have tried that, but I'm glad you did. Absolutely. I can agree more. So can you tell us the story about your daughter needed to touch the wall and how that had to do more with brain than behavior? Yes, definitely. Um, So my daughter used to do this thing that used to absolutely just drive me crazy. It was one of those behaviors that just really got to me. Um, She would drag her hands along the wall um, while she walked. And um, like, that is something that lots and lots and lots of kids do. But when I say she did that, it was super extreme. We, our walls literally looked like the walls in a skating rink, like black, black, black all over our walls. And um, we did everything we could think of behaviorally to, to correct that behavior out of her, like everything we could think of (laughs) and um, nothing worked. We couldn't shift her from every time she, you know, uh, and I was convinced she was on a mission to drive me out of my mind, like (laughs) with this behavior, like I was just convinced it was deliberate, you know, completely personal. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. A personal attack on me every time she walked down the halls and like, yeah, I was for sure. And, um, eventually we were invited to do, um, an assessment, Dr. Perry's neurosequential trauma assessment. And, um, we got back the results and, I took one look at the results and just about fell out of my chair when I saw proprioceptive deficits. So if you don't know what proprioceptive deficits are, um, it's basically the feeling of floating, like not knowing where your body is in time and space. So that moment that I saw that, Um, it just hit me like this huge wave of like shame came over me of that parental shame that there's nothing like that. Oh my gosh, I get it now. My daughter is not trying to make me mad by running her hands along the walls. Her brain is prioritizing the need for her to stay standing upright and get where she's going before she can even consider the front part of her brain thinking before her brain will even allow her to consider what I do or don't want her to do. Mm -hmm. Like that was just this moment, this light bulb moment for me that was like, this is a can't behavior. It's not a won't behavior. Mm -hmm. And I was already, I had already been to his workshop. I already, you know, I already got that there was a neuro component to all of this stuff. But that moment was like, whoa, she isn't being non-compliant here. You know, she doesn't even, she's not even using the part of her, she's not accessing the part of her brain that could even inform her thinking about what I want. It was huge. Yeah. And, and like, she doesn't feel balanced. Right. You know, it's like, feels like she's going to fall over. Holy smokes. Like that's a lot to walk through life with. So, so the second guiding principle that's kindness and compassion responses soothe the nervous system in this reaction, or I mean, in this example that you're giving, show me what that looks like. 
So you know what we did? Well, I talked to her about it. I apologized to her. I told her, I'm so sorry. I get it why you're doing this now, you know? And we had a conversation about it. And what I did after that is I put up butcher paper, butcher paper all along our walls. And I was like, go for it. And we wrote on the walls and like, you know, like it was totally fine from then on, you know, it was like, these walls are for hands, you know, it was, it was, it was a total shift, you know? Um, and, and we started working on proprioception. We started mm -hmm. doing regulating activity that would support proprioception, you know? So, um, so that was a huge change, you know, yeah. and also recognizing, you know, that, you know, being accountable to her. Um, one of the greatest gifts that's come from all of this for me was finding the ability to apologize to my kids and modeling that for mm -hmm. my kids. Um, that has been huge. Mm -hmm. It's made it so much easier for my kids to be able to apologize and practice the rhythm of relationships, that connection, break, repair piece that is so hard for often so hard for kids who've experienced trauma. Um, I know for both of my kids, that was really hard. Yeah. And I mean, we talk all the time about, listen, you know, we can be as informed as we can try to be, and we can go about our life trying not to trigger anybody, but that's not the point. Like we're, we're not going to not trigger, uh, people. Um, yeah. but we can be aware and we can take accountability and ownership when we do. And I think that's a really beautiful example for kids to see um, that adults can take ownership of, of where they didn't have enough information or they made a mistake and they can repair that relationship rather than let's gloss over that and pretend that didn't happen. And um, yeah, the repair is a really big one. Yeah. And I think for my kids, that's one of the things that we have seen through all of this is that they actually do see repair as a gift that gets you back in connection now. Mm -hmm. And I never even had that goal, that specific goal in parenting um, until all of this, you know, but now I look at that and my kids do have that outlook about repair and accountability. It's easy for my kids to be accountable because they do see it as a gift that gets them back into connection. And, and that's been, that's been a really beautiful, unexpected gift of all of this. So with the kindness and compassion responses, I just want to break that down a little bit more because I, so I'm thinking of situations where kids are obviously their nervous system is, um, tr is activated. Mm -hmm. Um, and they seem triggered or they are having big behaviors or they're angry or they are, you know, engaging in property damage or something like that. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of parents or, or people that are trauma informed want to go about it. Like, I understand your nervous system is, you know, really riled up right now and we're here to help you. We love you. And it's like, really overt kindness and compassion, right? And like the kids just like bubbling more and more because it's this language and yeah. somebody's talking in this soft voice to them and they're like, you're not matching their, you know, what they're putting out. So what can kindness and compassion 
look like in some of those moments that's not so obvious and almost can be more triggering it when we're can be. you're right yeah you're totally the first thing for me is always empathy but it's not like oh you know like <laughs> it's always matching it for me especially with older kids it's 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 that empathy combined with great validation where it's like oh, i know that really stink like i do mm. match them you know i'm right there with them that you're right this stinks you know like whatever it is matching that and empathy you know and then um my um my thing is empathy and connection before correction every single time right mm. you know which is a combination of all this stuff that I've learned. And so that's where I start always is just validating and being there with them. I'm a big fan of proximity, you know, as close as they will let me be physically and emotionally just being with them. You know, mm -hmm. I'm with you in this. I, I see how you're feeling. I'm feeling with you and I'm here with you in this. Mm. And, um, I think that's really the biggest start. And I think a lot of a lot of what I see in the families that I work with is there um, is that sometimes that is a really quick thing and then they move forward. And for me, that's a really big piece of it. And we stick there for a long time. Like, I think that that's how co-regulation starts. Like if you are feeling with them and then they get the idea that are feeling with them, then you can get to co-regulation, you know? And once you're co-regulating with them, then, then once they know I'm feeling with them, then I start to breathe with them. Mm. And then they start to match my breath. And then we start to, you know, and so it's a subtle thing. I'm not saying, okay, now we're going to breathe <laughs> ever. <laughs> my, our, our, um, our term that we use, we were at a camp once and somebody threw a fork. And so we're like, if you say that you're going to get a fork in the eye. Like, so we don't say like things like that. Don't breathe. You know, like we don't say breathe. Exactly. Yeah. It, it really reminds me of like understanding the intention behind your words. And I love that you're saying, you know, just be there because there's been um, a lot of times that I've seen what we've called disengaging working where you are just there and maybe you do have the words that you say, Hey, I understand this is tough for you and I'm just going to hang here while you work through it. Yeah. But then you stop talking because if the, if the words afterwards, I, I, I would just ask people to um, become aware of what their words are for, but so often the words are really saying, I hope this is over soon and I hope you get, you know, because they're saying, right. if you sit down, we can go do this. Um, I'm here for you. I, but the, the, the inflection behind it is really saying like, this is uncomfortable for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, this is uncomfortable for me and hurry up and get done with this. And we really have somewhere to be and all of those things. And so the two things I always say are stop the clock. Mm. Like just, you have to be able to stop the clock. And in our busy, busy lives with kids with high trauma needs, we're always trying to get somewhere. And that's to me, number one is number one, when they're in that place, 
stopping the clock is the best gift for you and for them because it's impossible all be getting to neuroception of safety is all about getting back to the present moment because when we're in threat response we're predicting threat we're looking forward or we're looking back mm -hmm. we're we're looking at the past or we're looking at the future and so getting back to the present moment is really the goal and you can't really do that unless you stop the clock you know so just being able to be right here right now in this moment you me it, that is a huge gift in itself you know I, and yeah, then, I love that. yeah. And so doing that and then the other part of it is um, talking less and just doing and being with, mm. right? Like we were saying. Um, and then, and I think that's the, and then once they are able to reset and then, then checking in mm -hmm. with them, you know, to see. Yeah. Right. Doing that processing but doing it after when when they're back in their learning brain or their non-reactive brain yes yes exactly. I, I love that so much um yeah really it really makes me think of um you know part of being empathetic when we talk about empathy or we talk about compassion um empathy is actually putting yourself in somebody else's experience so Right. Being able to hold space, I think, is the most empathetic thing that someone can do. And so I think a lot of times being empathetic isn't doing anything other than holding the space. And I, you know, if you have had young children, I think about it when my two year old's throwing a tantrum or something. If all I can do is breathe, not have it trigger me at all, my anxiety isn't raised. It is what it is, it's his experience, he can't control his emotions, and that's where we talk about co-regulation and in your, your body um, and how your nervous system reacts can actually help them regulate. But a lot of it is just, how are you playing into the dynamic? Yes. And if you're talking, exactly. sometimes you're not being present. If you're talking, sometimes right. you're pushing to an, an outcome. That's right. You're pushing. Exactly. Um, the other thing is if you are talking, one of the things I'm really big on is, especially with the kids who are in really big escalations like you were just describing, um, is often we, our systems even teach us to say things like, that's not safe mm. don't do that that's not safe and i'm really big on only speaking words of safety mm. not the opposite mm -hmm. you know so um instead of telling them what isn't safe talking about what is safe you know like being safe speaking safety instead of not safe right because what i've observed is that when you talk about not safety you're further triggering threat often with our kids yeah absolutely and and you know i think of times where kids were in full crisis mode and what one parent may see is that's not safe or can't happen in my home because like the this might get broken or you know there'll be milk all over the rug 
at what level can we kind of let things go where we are just being empathetic? Because if we're being empathetic and we're holding space and we're acknowledging that they're having a rough time, this, the things that they're doing or the things that they're saying, right? We hear about this all the time if a kid calls their mom a fat pig or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Those are the things that you want to go, okay, now you're done, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah or, right. I just vacuumed that. So there, there's things that they can do that they, that they know work to engage in this, this power struggle. So really kind of testing yourself on how much you can let go too in those moments and just see it all as the same thing. It's all just yes. dysregulated behavior. Yes. It's distress mm -hmm. that yeah, it's distress. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So the final guiding truth, which is, you know, the one that speaks to me the most, I feel like if I had to choose one, but that our idea of community needs to be redefined. Um, it needs to adapt because compassionate relationships heal trauma. So our podcast is centered around uh, community members that want to help, want to partner and take responsibility for foster youth. So when you say that your, our idea of community needs to change or be redefined, what do you envision? Like what, yeah. So we um, were, like I said, we were super isolated. Um, we found that, you know, with our kids and their complex needs, we couldn't have a, you know, we couldn't hire the, the neighborhood babysitter because that didn't work for our kids. Um, our kids couldn't do team sports. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't do, you know, um, you know, typical kid stuff. And so we just felt like our world kept getting smaller and smaller mm -hmm. and smaller and smaller. And finally we were just completely isolated and had no one. It was just us. We couldn't do extended family events. We couldn't do anything. It was just us. So, um, and also having, you know, been exposed to Bruce Perry's work and all, I knew that that isolation was causing more harm, you know, because we do know that, 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 that isolation causes more harm. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we started trying to figure out ways to build, um, community in a different way, really out of necessity, not because we wanted it to be that way, but because we had to, and it all kind of started for us. We went on a, a paddleboarding trip, um, for father's day one year. And, um, we, you know, hired a guide to take my, my husband and our family out on a paddleboarding excursion. And, um, we, the experience was so amazing. This guide was so amazing with my son, mm. um, that, um, by the end of the paddleboarding trip, I don't know what kind of came over me. I just kind of blurted out, um, would you, his name was Ben. And I was just like, Ben, would you be interested in, if I paid you, would you take my son out on a, um, on some kind of adventure every month or so? And he said, yes, which was absolutely unbelievable. And so we, um, started having him take Jonah out on adventures every month. And he agreed to learn the neuroscience. Wow. We trained him. We taught him everything that we knew. 
Um, turns out he had worked in outdoor, um, you know, with, um, with, with teens Mm -hmm. and he is now a total mentor for my son. He's a part of our family. He doesn't take any money from Mm -hmm. us. He's become like a part of our family. Um, and we started this idea of what if we trained people to be natural supports to have the neuroscience, to understand how to support families the way Ben has supported us. And so we developed a curriculum for that and we have been doing that. And we got our first grant and just had, we just trained our first cohort of, well, we, we have the, the last training next week and we will have our first cohort of 60 relational mentors in our county um under this curriculum so we're super excited about it because we really set out to train people to be able to be natural supports for families of children that have children with trauma related needs i love this i love this so much um you know my like visionary brain goes to like oh like this matchmaking service for like um yeah. Yeah. for parents like, that no. feel isolated and need i know us too <laughs> that that's that's incredible and just so needed but but there's a lot of how you know to it and a lot of science to yeah. it and a lot of um liability if you want to use the word as far as just like th- it could go really wrong if it's not done yeah. well, um, yeah. it could cause more trauma, you know? So, yeah. so those are all the things that you think about. And, um, you know, I just think of like church communities and community-based organizations where they really have a huge heart for, um, serving these families, Yeah, but they do need, uh, the tips of the world to say, I've got your back. Like, I'm going to help you figure this out because it's not as easy. Exactly. Um, and it's not as easy either as like, you know, get them backpacks or. Right. And one of the things that we've done with this training is ideally people take the training and then in their community, we set up a community of practice. So they have each other um, to, and they, they gather once a month. So like here where we've done it, they take the training and then each month they all gather and talk about how they're using these tools with kids. And there's a lead person. We are the lead person right now, you know, to teach them and, and guide them through the process. Like, Oh, we'll try this next time. And just Mm -hmm. try to help them really become good at it. You know? Yeah. 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 Cause you need the feedback loop in action. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Just like parents do, or we all do. So if there was, say somebody was listening and they're like, that sounds great. I want access to this training. Does it usually work with, um, like a, a entity will gather a bunch of mentors, uh, together. Yeah. We're launch it. Yeah. We're, we're kind of new at it. You know, like we've just launched our curriculum and we're actually building an online platform to be able to do, um, to do this training online. Um, but we are, we are definitely looking to do that. We would like to have, um, organizations or communities, um, you know, contact us. We are, um, working with a tribal community right now to um, to put this in motion within their 
within their tribe. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, we're, we're, if they wanted to contact us and talk to us about possibilities, we would love, we would love to do that. Yeah. That, that I'm just so excited to see, you know, what's on the horizon and how, I mean, this is the type of thing that just changes how we approach uh, foster care, how we approach families, adoptive families. And, you know, when we talk about the, the moving the big needle of ending our foster care crisis, it's going to take uh, the community to get involved. Exactly. I mean, anybody who has adopted or is caring for a child with high trauma needs or has a child with high trauma needs will tell you that respite and care it's the hardest thing it's the hardest part and it's not enough even if you find it (laughs) and it's the piece of the puzzle I used to be on the board for the attachment and trauma network and I can tell you that we used to say we it's the hardest piece of the puzzle it's the hardest piece of the puzzle to solve you know for our kids is that that piece of of quality care I know for me as a parent, I, we, part of the reason we became isolated was because finding people who could be in connection in relationship with our kids without inadvertently accidentally doing more harm was so hard. That was so hard to make happen, you know? So that's what this was. That was the intention behind this is how do we build self-healing communities where fam- where families can feel supported by their community in a way that all families need it, and we need more, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I love it. So tell us about um, extraordinary parenting or xparenting.com. Yeah. Tell us about uh, that resource. Yeah, that is our consulting firm, and we do assessment and consultation um, for kids with high trauma needs, and then we do regulation and resilience coaching. I do regulation and resilience coaching, and then we also offer to communities and agencies implementing our RISE philosophy of care, which stands for Relational Integrative Supportive Experiences. So. It's really all of this science pulled together, everything I've learned. And we are this year piloting that model through a a therapeutic foster care network called YouthNet here in Washington. Um, We've been doing it for a year and they've been loving it. It's been going really great. So that's been really exciting too. I love it. Uh, It sounds like so much is on the horizon for you guys. So if you, if anybody that is listening wants to check out those resources, definitely go to xparenting.com. You can get in touch with Tiff um, through, through that. I will also in the show notes, link that website, link any of your socials so that people can find you. Thank you so much. This has been incredible. And I think such a good resource because we like practical, first of all, one of your superpowers is taking all of this stuff, which is just so much. It's clinical, it's neuroscience, it's, you know, psych, yeah. psychoeducation, and it's bringing it down to the lay person's kind of understanding. And it's just so important because 
we all kind of get, we all want to know how to help, but we aren't all scientists. We all aren't foster parents. We all aren't, you know, so we need to know just what we need to know to be of help. And you do a really good job of breaking that all down. Thank you so much. That has been my goal. It's been my goal to be like, I can know all the acronyms and all the stuff, but in that moment when my kid is like really escalated, what can I, how can I access that in this moment? So that's been my goal. So thank you so much. And this has been awesome. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that with Tiff on the three guiding truths. I will keep in contact with you guys in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group, and I will talk to you next month. Stay safe out there.